Okay, friends, the story begins. We are on page 67, top of the page, where it says, For the choir master, Lamanatseach Mizmor de David. And we're continuing the, we're kind of winding down from the climax of prayer. We started, you know, we finished the Tachnun, we finished the Torah reading. And as we wind down, we said Ashrei, that was last week's discussion. And now there's this chapter of Tehillim, this chapter of Psalms, a direct cut and paste from chapter 20 of Tehillim, of Psalms. And what we're going to do today is discuss the significance of the psalm, discuss why we're reciting it specifically at this point in davening, and the timeless message and meditation that it comes with. Let's quickly just familiarize ourselves with the contents of the prayer on page 67. Let's just read through it quickly. For the choir master, a psalm by David. We'll explain what that means in a moment. Choir master. Who's this choir master? May the Lord answer you on the day of distress. May the name of God, may, may the name of the God of Jacob fortify you. May he send your help from the sanctuary and support you from Zion. May he remember all your offerings and always accept favorably your sacrifices. May he grant you your heart's desire and fulfill your every counsel. We will rejoice in your deliverance and raise our banners. In the name of our God, may the Lord fulfill all your wishes. Now I know that the Lord has delivered his anointed one, answering him from his holy heavens with the mighty saving power of his right hand. Some rely upon chariots and some upon horses, but we rely upon and invoke the name of God. Sorry, the name of the Lord, our God. They bend and fall, but we rise and stand firm. Lord, deliver us. May the king answer us on the day we call. So this prayer is very much centered around being answered in times of distress and realizing that our strength comes from, from God, not from chariots, not from horses, not from tanks, not from good art artillery, but our strength comes from God. And when we call out to God, he answers us. And this is why traditionally when one is in distress, um, this is a good go-to chapter of Psalms to recite. What is the context that um, led King David to compose this prayer? You know, the, the book of Tehillim is, is an interesting book of in the Tanakh. Because many books in the Tanakh, like the book of Samuel or others, have storylines, right? You have stories about King David, about King David killing Goliath, about King David assuming leadership, about conquering Jerusalem, about his about running away from Avshalom. The book of Psalms is what King David was, was doing while these stories took place. The backstory. It's almost like the backstory to, to King David's life because it's him praising God in all of his life situations. And the commentaries point out that King David had a general named Yoav. And he sent Yoav and the army to battle a specific war. And apparently it was a very important battle. And it was this prayer that King David recited while going out to battle. And um, that's why it says, to the choir master, 
because they were singing. He instructed the the Levites to actually sing this in the Beit Hamikdash. At the Beit in the Beit Hamikdash, the in the Holy Temple, the Levites had their position where they would perform and they would sing every day, and King David had them actually sing the song. So whenever we're in times of needs, when at uh, need, whenever we find ourselves battling, battling something, we recite this prayer. But why do we recite it now? It's a nice thing to say when in distress, but why is it a routine part of prayer, specifically post-Tachnun, post-Amida, at this point? So here's what the Talmud says. Talmud points out something interesting. When we think about the Amida, the 18 blessings of the Amida, the Talmud in Tractate Brachos discusses what these blessings correlate to, what they correspond. Why are there 18 blessings rather than 19? Well, the truth is there are 19. But why did they establish 18 blessings rather than a, a square number 20? Right? Why not 17? Why not 15? We have, 15, you know, seven. Seven's a good lucky number in Judaism. Where does 18 come from? The Talmud points out that there are the first 18 chapters of Tehillim, or really 19 chapters of Tehillim of Psalms, are uh, were the foundation, the grassroots, for the idea of an 18-prayered, stru uh, structured prayer, the Amidah. In other words, when Ezra established the Amidah, it was based off the 18 chapters, first 18, 19 chapters of Tehillim. And what happens right after those prayers? We have chapter 20, the one we recite right over here. Just like chapter 20 comes after the first 18 or 19 that correlate to the Amidah, after reciting our Amidah, we recite Chapter 20. That's what the commentaries explain. That's the technical reason. It's very technical. But there's another re reason here why we recite this chapter. Commentaries point out that it actually alludes to the Messianic era. We're asking God for salvation. We're asking God for deliverance. We're not saying, God, deliver me from my problem. <laughs> deliver me from the problem. Because my problem is not a problem, it's a symptom. Any problem we have is a symptom of a much bigger issue. Hamas is not a problem, it's a symptom. Um, social media gaslighting is not a problem, it's a symptom. Anti-Semitism in universities, university, universities, universities, <laughs> in universities. <laughs> that's not a problem. That's a symptom. So what's the real problem? Gullus. Exile. There was a time where the entire Jewish population lived together in the land of Israel. We had a holy temple and God's presence was a very, very much part of the fabric of our existence and when that ended we went into gullus and any problem we experience is a symptom of that actual one problem 
So what we're actually praying for in this prayer is for Mashiach. It's for the Messianic era. That's why we say in the very first line, second sentence, first line, towards the end of the line, may the Lord answer you on the day of distress. May the name of God, the God of Jacob, deliver you. And then if you scroll later, a little bit further down, um, middle of the lot here, one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine, nine lines from the top, where it says, now I know that the Lord has delivered his anointed one. In the Hebrew, it says, Meshicho, answering him from his holy heavens. Meshicho, his anointed one, the Mashiach. God has appointed his Mashiach to answer us. Yes, we're suffering. Yes, we're going through pain. Yes, we're going through troubles and tribulations and, and, and challenges. And our solution, the one whom God has anointed to deliver us. Mashiach, but more broadly, the Messianic era. The Midrash points out that there are nine verses, nine sentences in this chapter of Tzillim. What's the significance of nine? So the Midrash says it correlates to the nine months of pregnancy. Because exile is compared to pregnancy. Which is, by the way, a huge paradigm shift. Because we often understand the exile as a punishment. Right? Jews were living happily ever after, after the after Egypt, you know, after 40 years in the desert. But after we finally got to Israel, we live happily ever ever after in the Beit HaMikdash, and then we're kicked out. We're kicked out of our land. Beit HaMikdash is destroyed twice. And it's because we sinned. We weren't getting along with each other. We were leaning toward idolatry. We weren't doing the right things. It's a punishment. And there is an element of that. I, I, I don't want to say that's not true. It is a punishment. But it's much more than that. Exile is not just a punishment. Exile is a preparation. Um, childbirth, by the way. Okay, this isn't going to be very PC, but it is what it is. <laughs> it's the truth. Don't cancel me, anybody. Um, <laughs> whoever's listening to this, um, not live, don't cancel me. Don't turn this off. Um, but childbirth, the, the pain of childbirth, the pain of child rearing, it was a punishment. Just like exile. Because Adam and Eve ate from the tree of knowledge. They ate the piece of fruit and they shouldn't have. So now Adam has to work for a living and Eve has to go through the pain of child rearing. It's a punishment. Just like exile. That was the right that, that that was exile on a very microcosmic personal level. But there's <laughs> there's two ways to look at the pain of child rearing. You could just focus on the pain or you could focus on what the pain is leading up to. Yes, it's painful. Yes, it hurts. It's worth it. 
because it's going to be your baby. It's going to be your joy and pride that you're going to embrace. Exiles compared to pregnancy because yes, it's painful and perhaps it's a punishment. But it's not a punishment for the sake of punishment. It's leading up to something beautiful, something priceless. Something that we're going to want to embrace one day, the Messianic era. Messianic era is the birth. The world right now is going bonkers, man. We know it. The world is crazy. And people are often asking, how could we even be near the Messianic era? We must be very far. Well, no, this is the birth pangs. This is the final stretch. That's when it's most painful. In labor, that's when it really hurts. It hurts. The nine sentences of this chapter correspond to the nine months of pregnancy because it's our hope that the exile is almost over. That God is going to answer us. That God is going to deliver us. Right? If you look on the go four lines from the bottom of the chapter, toward the end of the line, or five lines from the bottom, some rely upon chariots and some upon horses, but we rely upon and invoke the name of the Lord our God. Right? That's Mashiach-minded. Mashiach-minded means I realize that everything comes from God. Because it's going to be very obvious, painfully obvious when Mashiach comes. Right now we have to have faith that everything comes from God and that we're going to be okay. But when Mashiach comes, it's going to be painfully obvious. And when we start living like that now, that's Mashiach-minded. For for many, many... um. For many years, since the beginning of exile, Jews had been anticipating the coming of Mashiach. We'd been waiting. We'd been hoping. Right, The famous Ani Ma'amim song, taken from the words of my, taken from Maimonides, but but the tune was actually, you know the song? Ani Ma'amim, Ani Ma'amim. And I believe with complete faith. And I could believe in complete faith with the coming of Mashiach. The tune to that song had been authored in a cattle car during the Holocaust. Did you know that? A bunch of Jews rounded up, being taken to their death. And there was a chassid of the Rebbe of Majitz. There's a group of chassidim called the Majitz or Chassidim. There was the Majitz or Rebbe. And there was this chassid who was a composer. And his heart led him to composing the song. He was old and frail at the time. But he said, if anybody here can escape, please do. And take this song back to Majitz. Back to my Rebbe. And you're gonna, he said, I think, I think he even said, you'll get my my share in the world to come. And two young men tr- attempted to escape. One one um, succeeded, 
and was able to take this song to the Majid Rebbe, who apparently was in safety at the point at that point in time. The Majid Rebbe sang that song on Yom Kippur. That's the animani. I mean, my Jews had been anticipating and hoping and waiting. There was a rabbi named the Chafetz Chaim, Rabbi Yisrael Meir Kagan. He was a, a, a powerful leader. I don't know if he was a leader. He was a he was a powerful rabbi. He was truth is he wasn't that well known apparently when in his till he passed away. But but he was a very influential leader in the uh Lithuanian Ashkenaz world. The Chafetz Chaim. And he was so ready for Mashiach that he would have a suitcase packed at his door waiting. Mashiach could come any second, and he had a suitcase waiting. So this is how Jews had lived. We're always waiting for Mashiach. But the in 1992, truth is 1991, the Rebbe introduced an incredible shift in how we wait for Mashiach and changed it. The Rebbe said we're no longer just waiting or anticipating or hoping. We're going to live with Mashiach. As if he was already here. We're going to live with that mindset. So we're going to just be so ready, beyond ready. What would we do if Mashiach was here? I'd celebrate. I'd be joyous. I'd have much more intense faith and stronger faith than I do now. I trust more. Let's do that now. Right? It's 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 forward thinking therapy. <laughs> if things were good, what would I do? To just to take it a step further, you know, the Chafetz Chaim had a suitcase packed ready for Mashiach. The Rebbe started wearing his Shabbos clothing every single day at that point. Apparently. The Rebbe would wear, you know, the, the black frock, the long coat, the kapata that we wear. So generally, one would wear wool during the week. And on silk, for Kabbalistic reasons, one the Rebbe would wear silk. During, during the week, on Shabbos, the Rebbe would wear silk. But at this point, the Rebbe started wearing it every single day, wearing silk every single day, getting ready for Mashiach, living in Mashiach mind. And that's what this chapter is saying. Some rely upon chariots, some upon horses, but we rely upon and invoke the name of the Lord our God because we're ready. They bend and fall, but we rise and stand firm. Where do we get the strength to do this? It's very difficult in our climate of what's going on now to... Um, to remain strong and to be that powerhouse, to live with Mashiach-minded, Mashiach especially when things are tough and challenging. Very tough. Very difficult. Where do we get the strength to do that? The answer is in this week's Parsha, and it's quite relevant to this chapter. Let's go back to the top of the um, chapter again, the beginning of the chapter. For the choir master, a psalm by David, may the Lord answer you on the day of distress. May the name of the God of Jacob fortify you. Where are you going to get your strength? You're going to get this from the God of Jacob. 
And commentaries wonder, well, there's also a God of Abraham and the God of Isaac. It's obviously the same God. But why are we invoking specifically the God of Jacob rather than the God of Abraham or Isaac? Rashi points out that it's referring to Jacob's journey going from Beersheba to Haran, this week's Torah portion. And going into this corrupt land of Haran, Yaakov was able to maintain his spiritual sanity, his spiritual sobriety, and not get corrupt. How are we supposed to go out into the world, turn on our phones, open the internet, go to work, and not get intimidated by the social media gaslighting? and by media falsehood, and by anti-Semitism and hate, and negativity, and persecution. How was Yaakov able to do it? Yaakov lived in Beersheba with his father, with Isaac. He lived in his bubble, his spiritual bubble. He had to leave, and now he has to go to Haran. Haran was a corrupt city. And not only was he going to a corrupt city, he was going to a corrupt home, his uncle Lavan. A very, very corrupt home. A home where it was just full of lies and gaslighting and cheating. How is he supposed to maintain his sanity and sobriety? Well, what did Yaakov do on the way to Haran? He stopped for a nap. Right? Where did he stop for a nap? where he fell asleep, he had the dream, right, Jacob's ladder dream. What did he do before he went to sleep? The Torah says he took the stones of that place and he put them around his head. This is very timely because it's this week's Torah portion. He took stones, 12 stones, and he put them around his head to protect himself. What does Rashi say? Protect himself from wild animals. Commentaries wonder, how is that going to help? An animal won't attack his head, but it might attack the rest of his body. Right? So it doesn't doesn't really do anything. So, so commentaries answer, obviously he covered his whole body, surrounded his whole body with large stones. But the Torah is emphasizing his head. Because there's an ideological war that he needs to protect himself for as well. And he needs to make sure that when going to Lavan's house, where there's going to be lying, there's going to be hate, there's going to be gaslighting, he's got to protect his head. He's got to protect his perspective. There's times where it's very important to be flexible and fluid and open-minded. This was not one of those times. This is the time where he needs to put stones around his head. Nothing is getting in. I'm going to be like a rock. Nothing's going to move me. Nothing. If we want to prevail in times like these, we have to be less concerned with people's opinions and more focused on solidifying our beliefs like stone. Less concerned about being PC and less concerned about public opinion 
it's a losing battle because it, it partially is a number-based game. I'm more concerned about being more comfortable with our own faith, being rock-solid in our own faith. He surrounds himself with stones. One of my favorite commentaries, Rabbi Moshe Alsheikh, he was a Kabbalist in Sfat. He was a student of the Arizal, Rabbi Isaac Luria. And he points out something interesting. The Torah says, the Torah doesn't just say he, take, he took stones. The Torah tells us which stones he took. He took Avnei Hamakom, the stones of that place. <laughs> well, obviously he took stones of that place. He wasn't traveling with a suitcase of stones. <laughs> right? Too much weight, too much... <laughs> the airlines don't do that. Right? He's not... Traveling with stones, he, of course he took the stones of that place. Why does the Torah need to tell us he took the stones of that place? Well, because there was something unique about that place. Where was this place that he went to nap? Do you remember what Yaakov said when he woke up after his dream? Uh, this is where God's place is. This is where God's presence is. This is the gate of heavens. I shouldn't have slept here. This was ground zero. This is where the altar was going to be on Mount Moriah. 2,000 years later. This is where the binding of Isaac occurred just a couple of generations prior. And what did Abraham and Isaac do? They built an altar. Jacob shows up, unbeknownst to him the significance of this place. He's ready to go to bed. He sees a bunch of stones and he, took those, he takes those stones of Nehemakum, the stone of those plate of that place, and puts him around his head to protect himself. When we go into Haran, a corrupt land, and the house of Lavan, a corrupt home, a place where there's lying and cheating and gaslighting and negativity and hate and anti-Semitism, we need stones, the stones of our parents. We need the security of our previous generations to protect us. That's what we need to protect us. The sacrifice, the self-sacrifice that Abraham and Isaac displayed at Mount Moriah with the binding of Isaac, those stones are what was going to protect the ideological sanity of Jacob several generations later. This is why going back to our chapter, it's the God of Jacob who's going to fortify us. Jacob made sure to fortify himself, so God fortified him. He had that dream of God giving him confidence that everything's going to be okay only after he fortified himself, solidified himself in his faith like stone, used the tradition that his fathers had using those specific stones. Okay, I'd like to share with you one more explanation, the significance of these stones. The oldest book, Kabbalistic teachings, is called Sefer Yitzira. Some say that even um, Adam wrote it. Some say Abraham wrote it. It's different opinions who wrote it. It's very old. Probably the oldest book in Judaism because <laughs> it predates the Bible, ironically. And in this book, Sefer Yitzira, it talks about the Kabbalah of stones. Because again, Kabbalah is 
what what Kabbalah does is reveals a greater depth tells us that there's more it shows us how there's greater depth in reality beyond what the, what meets the eye a computer programmer is going to see more and and understand more about a computer than someone like myself right there there's there's more background there you understand that the more that goes into it and it's not just a bunch of wires and glass and, and plastic and and material there's more to it so what do stones represent? Stones are an analogy or a euphemism for words or letters. Because what is a letter? If somebody's uneducated or doesn't know the language, a letter is just a random character. It doesn't have to mean anything. It's just a shape. But if one is educated, a letter can actually represent something. It can make a sound. And if you put enough letters together, the right combination, with the right education, that letter can actually contain a message. Isn't that crazy? Random shapes and characters contain messages. And that's what stones do as well, by the way. A stone is just a stone. But if you arrange enough of them properly, you can have a home. They can contain you. They can they can be habitated by human beings. They could be valuable. They're not just stones anymore. It's a home. But you don't just show up to your house and I'm showing up to my pile of sticks and stones and wood and drywall. You just say I'm going home. Because it's arranged in a certain way where it it's my home. A book, if it's coherent, isn't just a pamphlet of letters, <laughs> of characters. There's a message there. So it's a book. It has a title. It has a message. So if we look at letters properly in context, what we see is a message. We look at stones. If we use them properly, it's not just an inanimate stone. It has depth to it. It has purpose and meaning to it. Even something inan inanimate has purpose and meaning and can reflect the light of God. So now Yaakov is on his journey and he says, how am I going to survive going to Haran? How am I going to survive going to Lavan? How am I going to survive going to a home that is full of hate, lies, cheating and gaslighting and anti-Semitism? How am I going to survive this? I have to start small. I have to realize that even a stone has meaning and value to it. I have to take these stones and lift them up to my head. And realize that with context, even something inanimate can reflect something so deep and spiritual. I have to be on a mission. I have to realize that I have a purpose. My purpose is to bring the light of God everywhere. Bring the value and beauty everywhere. By the way, if you notice in the Torah, he goes to sleep, he takes the stones. He wakes up and he finds a stone. That's what the Torah says. Did you notice that? Did you catch that? And Rashi points out even that the stones were arguing with each other. I want to be near Yaakov's head. No, I want to be near Yaakov's head. So they morphed into one stone. 
But what really took place here is Yaakov revealed the light of God within even an inanimate stone. One God, one, just one stone. It's really just one. And with that attitude, with the mission-oriented attitude, that a stone isn't a stone. A stone is a potential home. Just like a letter is not a letter, a character. It's a potential message. This world has so much beauty, potential beauty and meaning. And with that attitude, he was able to survive and even thrive going to Lavin's house. Because you'll see in next week's Parsha, he came out with many, many generations, <laughs> many children. The Jewish nation, the 12 tribes, had been established specifically against all odds in a place like Haran in Lavan's home. He was able to get that strength because he realized that I'm I'm not just here to... My life isn't just about running away from Asaph, running away from anti-Semitism. That's not what life is as a Jew. It's not about running away from Asaph, running away from hate and being a voice and just shouting never again. That's not just what Judaism is all about. There's a purpose. There's a meaning. There's a responsibility. There's a world where God seems very absent and we have to reveal how present he is, even in a stone. And with that, like Yaakov, we come out ahead. So going back to our chapter, how do we become Mashiach-minded? Where do we get the strength to be Mashiach-minded? To start living in that tense? To start living in that mindset? We say, may the name of the uh, may the name of the God of Jacob fortify you. Because it's the attitude that Yaakov had that earned fortification, that earned that strength. Okay, friends. That's my story, and I'm sticking to it. <laughs>